This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, it's good to have you back on the podcast. What have you been doing recently? Yeah, uh, I want to talk briefly about a newly released uh, movie box set, the Universal Monsters Limited Edition Collection. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I was sent a copy of this. Uh, I did not pay for it myself. So, you know, grain of salt with all that. But, you know, it's critical responsibility here, letting everybody know. This is the new uh, oversized Blu-ray 4K release of eight Universal Classic Monster movies. Uh, it's the eight you'd, you'd expect. Uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Creature in the Black Lagoon, The Wolfman. You know, it's uh, the big ones. Uh, but not necessarily the many, many sequels. Uh, like, you're not going to find, you know... The creature walks among us, or um, like I guess the one sequel you get, you get in the box is Bride of Frankenstein, but probably the most famous and best of the Universal sequels. Mm. And the reason I want to talk about this set is because I think some people are wondering if if it's worth getting. Uh, and I just want to say that I think that Universal has generally treated its monster and horror legacy with a great deal of respect over the years. And this set continues that trend. The 4K transfers of these movies look and sound phenomenal. I mean, if you've ever seen, you know, 4K uh, high def, you know, uh, versions of anything shot in film, you know, before the 80s, it's like, holy crap, movies looked good. And even <laughs> movies like these, which were, you know, uh, you know, little horror movies, uh, sometimes made on budgets, you know, between the 30s and the, and the 50s, uh, they, they look incredible in 4K. It's kind of wild. So if you're a Universal Monsters fan who's just interested in having the best looking versions of these movies, of the like the eight core, like undisputed classic films, this is such a must buy. I mean, it's it's uh, the limited edition uh, is a little pricey. The Amazon price looking at it right now is 130 bucks. So the question is, is eight movies in 4K in this oversized, flashy, uh, and I think really cool looking limited edition packaging worth the money and that's you know where it comes down between you and your wallet you and your responsibilities what's important to you uh, as somebody who like who loves physical media and wants to 
display, you know, this oversized uh, case in his uh, media room because uh, it was not going to fit on any regular shelf. <laughs> he also wants to have the best possible looking version of these movies. Uh, it is absolutely, you know, um, I would have bought this if I was not sent a copy. And I, and I think that uh, even though there are no new features, the commentaries and documentaries and trailers and everything assembled in all the discs is, you know, pretty comprehensive. Like all stuff you'd want for a release of Dracula's in the Dracula disc. Also, if you want for Frankenstein, it's on the Frankenstein disc. Uh, so if you're looking for new special features, it may not be what you're looking for, but you're you're paying for the 4K restoration. And I am kind of bowled over by how good these movies look. Uh, I will say that there, a couple years ago, Universal did release a Blu-ray box set of pretty much the complete Universal Monsters canon uh, of, of 30-something movies across multiple discs. Uh, you know, it's a regular Blu-ray, it's not 4K. And my guess is you can probably get that cheaper now, uh, or at least cheapish compared to this new release. Mm-hmm. So, my advice to people who are Universal Monster fans who are trying to make a wise decision here, you know, do you want the undisputed masterpieces looking better than they ever have before, or do you want everything, including the weird eccentric stuff that nobody really likes, but it's kind of there because you want to have the complete story um, on, you know, regular Blu-ray. So it's going to come down to, you know, your wallet and your needs. Uh, I have both. <laughs> and if they release a box set, that's the entire couple of years it's like it's, it's all the movies you know in 4k for an ungodly amount of money i'll probably buy that so yeah i just want to shout this out so the, the official name of the product is the universal monsters limited edition collection uh there is a, a 4k set of uh four movies i think it's uh, dracula frankenstein the mummy um and one other uh on 4k as well for much cheaper um but if you want the full eight 4k restorations this is a set to get and I was a limited edition, so I don't know how limited that means or how long it'll be around. But you know, if you're a fan of you know oversized uh, physical media sets, um, yeah, this is something that I would recommend that you at least take a look at. So, Jacob, I think you're the biggest Universal Monsters fan that I know, and I know that we've talked about your love for all of those movies before. But I have never asked you, do you have like a singular favorite among all of those uh, or even just the the classics that you mentioned there? Uh, of the undisputed classics, the best one is Bride of Frankenstein. It is funny and uh, low-key gay. It was made by largely gay filmmakers and who were winking a lot in the 30s. Uh, it's spooky and interesting and it has my favorite Karloff performance or at least my favorite Karloff as Frankenstein's monster performance. Um, I mean, some of the classics are a little difficult. Like Dracula is based on the Dracula stage play rather than the Dracula novel. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see, feel how stage bound it is. But some of the others, like I think that um, both Frankensteins um, are phenomenal movies. The Wolfman is so evocative and interesting. Uh, but if I had to pick one that's like that stands out above the rest, uh, the classic amongst the classics, it'll be Bride of Frankenstein. However, okay. if you want my opinion on my personal favorite one that i think is the most interesting universal monster movie and it's not in the box set it would be the one i mentioned earlier the creature walks among us the third in the creature from the black lagoon series uh which is the most depressing and bizarre and like ambitious swing for the b-movie fences i've ever seen from like the universal monsters canon so uh so in terms of like an actually great movie bride of frankenstein in terms of a movie i think is great but it's definitely not you know you know, regularly considered S tier, uh, the creature walks among us. 
Okay. Now, I've only ever seen the original Creature from the Black Lagoon. I've never, I guess, dipped my toe in any further to those waters. But uh, do you think that it's it's worth me going through and watching all of those movies like in order, I guess, to get to that one? Yes. I'll give you the, I'll give you the elevator pitch, Ben. Um, Creature Black Lagoon, you've seen it. Classic. Yep. Go to the jungle. There's a creature in the Black Lagoon. Shenanigans happen. Uh, the sequel is pretty much, what if the creature was abducted and taken to SeaWorld? This <laughs> is basically the um and escapes and causes havoc and it's revenge of the creature and it's it's pretty good it's okay it's it's very much it's lesser than the first film but it has its charms including the very first uh role ever for Clint Eastwood looking like a little baby in it um <laughs> kind of sneezing into the microphone I apologize no, um, okay. <laughs> but the, the the creature walks among us Ben is about another expedition to the uh, jungle to, to research the creature uh, leads to a fire which destroys the creature's uh, gills. In order to keep the creature alive, scientists give him a lung transplant. So now he can no longer breathe underwater and now lives on land, and they try to put him in human clothes and teach him how to speak and, tra- and essentially try to force this creature to live among humans and be like, we can prove this thing uh, can be trained, that it can be you know tamed and made one of us. And the answer is that no, it's not that easy. And But it's not just a cre- the creature kills people movie. It's a the creature is desperately sad and wants to die because it, because it no longer has its gills movie. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, that does sound pretty depressing. Um, okay. So let's get into what we've been reading. Uh, I read the, what is the word for it? it it's a um, the stage play uh, written by Ag- Agatha Christie called The Mousetrap. I'm not sure. Is there a... Uh, I guess it's the book. Is that the the technical term, like the theatrical term for the? Uh, well, the book the... is a term for the, uh, um, a musical. Like it was a book book by lyrics by. I'm not too sure if a book would apply for a stage play, but I could be wrong. I'm it's sure there's some term that I'm telling us right now, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, she wrote this um, this stage play uh, back in the 1950s, early 1950s, and it I think is the longest running West End show, the longest running play in the world. Um, something like almost 30,000 performances or something. It's been going, it basically ran continuously from 1952 until the pandemic hit and that had to shut it down, but it's, it's since resumed, I think as of 2021. Um, anyway, it's, it's, uh, if you're familiar with Agatha Christie's work and the sort of formula that comes into play with the Poirot stories and things like that, um, this is just a very, very condensed version of that. So I found it to be a pretty enjoyable little read. I mean, it, it literally took me like, a few hours to read. It's like, I don't know, like very, very, very short. Jacob, I feel like you could read this thing in like 10 minutes with how fast you read. Um, but yeah, it took me a little bit longer, but definitely like a day because it, it's only a few pages really. Uh, but yeah, it's just like a very enjoyable, very condensed one location, uh, handful of characters, um, murder mystery type of story. And uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. So I'm obviously not going to spoil anything that happens or whatever, but I would just recommend like if you are um, a fan of Agatha Christie's novels and if you've been reading a bunch of those for a while and want to mix things up a little bit, just check out The Mousetrap, which is I think the only the only major play that she wrote uh, as far as I know. So um, well, have you heard of Akaton? Ben? No, I haven't. What is that? Uh, Akaton, I, I, I know it's because I recently went on a binge where I started buying all the, uh, there was this series of Agatha Christie publications uh, published in the 80s through the early 2000s, where these these faux blue leather bound versions of all of her works. And I said, if I'm going to own these books, I should buy them all in this edition. And I started like scouring used bookstores and got all the ones that are super cheap and got all the ones that are a little more expensive. And I've got most of them now, except for the ones that are prohibitively expensive and out and like long, long gone. 
Um, they look really, really neat on a shelf. I recommend them if, you, if you're a book collector. Uh, but one of the ones that I think you have an idea of how comprehensive it is, uh, while doing research for uh, Death in the Nile, Agatha Christie compiled so many notes about ancient Egypt and Egypt in general that she wrote a play for fun called Akaton. It's not a mystery. It's a drama history play set in ancient Egypt. And it was never produced in her lifetime, but it was found after she died and is now published and has now been performed. So it's Agatha Christie's essentially historical uh, ancient Egypt play. And I'll, I'll never get around to reading it, but it exists and it's out there. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, never heard of that. And now I'm looking this up and I realized I should have looked this up beforehand. She's written like 15 plays or something. So th- just the fact that I've heard of the mousetrap and that is the, her most famous one. Uh, yeah, th- that's what I should have said. Um, but yeah, she definitely had many, many other things that she wrote. And she actually has like a, a list of probably 10 or so unpublished, um, like one act or, or full length plays as well. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, I would say The Mousetrap. If you're a Christie fan and haven't checked it out, check it out. Uh, what have you been reading recently, Jacob? Uh, I recently finished uh, Kubrick and Odyssey by Robert P. Kolker and Nathan Abrams. This is the new biography of, of filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. Um, it's good. I have issues with this book, which I'm going to get out, the front, get out front of right now. Um, I think that their authors are a little too protective of Kubrick at times. They're so desperate to... Uh, remove some of the myths and lies about him that they sometimes go overboard. Uh, like, for example, um, the book is pretty open about him being a very difficult collaborator, um, about him being somebody who would often seek credit that wasn't his or try to undermine people who worked hard. Basically, like early Kubrick tried to take credit for cinematography stuff that wasn't his. For his entire career, he would undermine writers and just treat writers like crap, uh, actors too. But the book also tries to go over, over, talk about how like how much members of his crew really did respect him, and how for a guy who has a reputation for being cold and cruel, had like seventeen cats and six dogs, and was like a really loving guy to his pets and to his family, and uh, which is it's a very very complicated portrait. Like Stanley Kubrick is not just um, some evil bastard who tormented his actors and made uh, two month long shoots stretch into fourteen months, which is you know a very common conception of him. Uh, it was definitely, it was, it was just a guy who was difficult, challenging, demanding, and sometimes a total asshole, but was not, um, but was not one thing. He was yeah. more complicated than that. But I do think there are points in the book where the writers will try to wave, hand wave away some really crappy behavior by saying, but look at the results. Like, for example, the, uh, the Shining chapter in particular, uh, where it goes into great detail about the misery he put Shelley Duvall through for a year of filming, uh, like really, heinous stuff um but then like they come to the conclusion of but her performance is so good and i'm saying yeah it is a great performance but i don't think that's a good excuse i think you can yeah. kind of walk that line my other issue with this book is that it's 600 pages long and uh which is probably about the about right length of time you need for you know to cover uh Sandy kubrick's career from beginning to end and there are points where it just gets repetitive like they'll say tell an anecdote uh at one point in one chapter that chapter later, repeat it, and uh, and it's always in a different context. But the, it really feels like there was a lack of ed- of editing finesse at times. Uh, like an editor should have caught that. Oh, this story's been told twice. We don't need to yeah. have it here. And it's ha- it started happening enough times for me to sort of raise an eyebrow. So with that out of the way, I still found Kubrick and Odyssey to be uh, illuminating, entertaining, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about um, the the making of 
all of his movies uh, about him as a person, but his many, many unmade movies. Like there's entire chapters dedicated to him developing the film that would become AI. That, that Spielberg would ultimately direct. And those chapters are a real trip because that's 30 plus years of a guy not knowing what he wants and <laughs> burning out a dozen different writers along that path. Um, <laughs> I will say that if you're looking for like in-depth making of, of each of his movies, this may not be the place for it because you know you only spend so much time on an individual movie before you have to move on. Um, like for example, I, I was kind of surprised by how little time was spent on Clockwork Orange, um, but also I found the stuff about Full Metal Jacket utterly engrossing. Um, if you want really in-depth material, uh, there's a book called Space Odyssey that I discussed on this podcast a few years ago. That's one book about the making of 2001 Space Odyssey, and it is a genuinely incredible book and the best book I've ever read uh, about Stanley Kubrick in any way, even though it's about the entire film and about everybody else who worked on it. Um, but if you want just an overall career portrait, everything from his 1950s work, the Spartacus 2001, all the way up to Eyes Wide Shut, as well as his unmade Holocaust film, the Aryan Papers, his version of AI that didn't get made, uh, looks at what his Napoleon film would have looked like. This, the, the, and then many, many people who were his great friends and his worst enemies, um, Kubrick and Odyssey, is worth reading. I just think you should approach it with your own, one, with the knowledge that I think it needed some editing, and two, um, I think the author's probably need somebody to tell them hey i know that you can get close to your subjects but maybe getting a little too close here yeah okay well yeah that's a great recommendation kubrick and odyssey is the name of the book uh let's take a break and then we'll get back into what we've been watching all right jacob i rewatched dune denis villeneuve's 2021 movie for the first time since uh it came out and i watched it at home on hbo max when it debuted in theaters and hbo max simultaneously back then and then i rewatched it uh, I guess technically I watched it on Netflix this time. Um, but uh, man, what a movie. I, I liked it more. I liked it a lot back then because um, I had read the book, you know, leading up to it. And I liked it even more this time. I, I just like am a big fan of what he's doing there. I know people have mixed feelings about uh, that movie and his adaptation choices and whatever. But like, God, what a movie. It just it feels uh, singular in a way that um, that you kind of have to have to have for a dune story like it's such a weird weird story and a, a weird movie in many ways too um it, i'm so glad that i read the book before uh, engaging with any uh, filmed adaptations of it just because it, it i am i have to imagine that it's like it can feel impenetrable to some people um but because i had that knowledge base of me reading the book ahead of time it was much much easier for me to clock the uh, dynamics between characters and things like that and like who's doing what and why and all of that stuff in the movie and um i think all of that was just like further clarified for me on a second viewing in the movie and i just think it's it's a really 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 like top tier blockbuster experience so uh, i don't know you're about to talk about uh, seeing dune part two in just a minute um but did you revisit the first one before you caught up with the sequel there are a handful of movies that my wife watches and rewatches and rewatches like she'll just have it on while she's doing laundry or while she's uh knitting or while she's um doing some busy work uh for at her job um so uh, and those are movies, are movies that i've now seen dozens of times because she'll just have them on and i'll often be in the room like i've seen david finch's girl girl dragon tattoo maybe 30 times now because that's one of her movies um and one of her movies has become dune uh dune is always on in my house uh Sometimes with subtitles, sometimes not. Sometimes booming, sometimes like nearly muted. Um, but it's always, always playing in my house. And it was funny because going into Dune, I was one who was really excited. I was one who was like, who'd read the book? And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so exciting. This is totally up my alley. And my wife's like, oh, I, I like these actors. 
know, maybe I'll like this too. And she's become the Dune head. So um, <laughs> I didn't necessarily need to rewatch Dune specifically for Dune Part Two, Ben, because I've Dune is in, in, in my house about once a week. Yeah, uh, and I, I do say um, I I know that the, the David Lynch film has this. Um, this uh, people have sort of come up out of the shadows, be like, "Hey, it's actually good. It's actually a really good adaptation of Dune." And I fundamentally disagree. I think the David Lynch film is a disaster as an adaptation and as a movie. And I don't think it captures what I think is special, unique, and enthralling about Frank Herbert's novel. Um, I, I think it's a, there's bizarre moments that are interesting, but it's not. I, 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 I cannot get on board the train of people who are like, "Hey, this movie's actually good," because no, it's not, guys. Come on. <laughs> um, I do think that Denis Villeneuve, um, uh, he just lends a grandeur and a respect to Dune that I, I don't know. I, I just, I just feel like in the same way that. Peter Jackson, when he filmed the Lord of the Rings films, treated them like they were actual important events. Like, this isn't just a fantasy story. This is the fantasy story. And I think Dune is the sci-fi novel. Uh, and I, I, there's no trace of camp in, yeah. in, 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 in uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. It's just like, you know, somebody who clearly sees that novel as genuine literature, worthy of, like, utmost respect. And he shoots like it's Lawrence of Arabia. And he's, he's yeah. not shooting it like it's you know a Marvel movie. As somebody who likes Marvel movies, it's it's it's, it's shot like it's something like that like demands your attention. I think it's a remarkable film, and we'll talk about part two in a second. Yeah, shout out to Greg Frazier, the cinematographer, who just like does absolutely incredible work in that first movie. I mean, I'm so excited. I have my tickets to see the second one uh, this coming Thursday night, tomorrow night. Um, so I, I can't wait to dive back into Arrakis. But yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to that uh, the 2021 movie because um, it held up even more and, and I liked it even more the second go around. So uh, that's that. I think it's streaming on Netflix and HBO Max. Uh, Netflix, I believe it leaves um at the end of this month end of february so like by friday it'll be gone off netflix so uh just a, a psa for anybody who has netflix and wants to catch up with that um okay i also watched paprika for the first time have you ever seen this movie the satoshi cone movie well, satoshi cone is that one of my big blind spots and a former slash film editor uh turned inverse editor uh, hoi chan Bui, is uh screaming at me right now for not and for not being up to date on this. Well, she recommended one of his films called Millennium Actress to me a few years ago. And I watched that and really, really enjoyed it. And it's just taken me a few years to, to get around to checking out another one of his movies. I believe he only directed four films, um, but now I've seen two of them. And Paprika is uh, came out in 2006. And it's it's pretty fantastic. I mean, it, it, speaking of weird movies, like it's a very, it's almost tough to follow in certain parts, but in a great way, like kind of like, um, I'm trying to remember, to think of another comparison that isn't Inception, because that's the big, there's like such a, uh, a conversation has sprung up. Are you aware of this conversation, Jacob? Have you like uh, read any articles comparing Inception and Paprika at all? Yeah, it's the new Dark City versus the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, this movie came out a few years before Inception and um, Nolan's Inception has a lot of imagery that is basically like it's not a beat for beat remake of the story or anything like that, but some images seem to be ripped directly out of this movie and people, there's like a lot of um, articles out there that are like, Oh, this movie influenced uh, uh, inception and like Nolan, you know, cites, cites it as an influence and all that. And I was looking before we started recording today, I have never found a quote where Christopher Nolan has actually talked about this movie at all or like admitted that this, you know, that he's even seen this movie, let alone that it like was a, he was doing any sort of homage or that it 
got into his head subconsciously or otherwise or whatever. So I have no idea why, where these people, I feel like people are just making stuff up and being like, yeah, there are similarities. So it must have influenced that movie. Um, you kind of have to have a quote from a filmmaker before you can like say that definitively. So uh, anyway, just wanted to put that out there, but um, yeah, it's, it's basically about uh, a dream terrorist who steals this device that lets you uh, go into people's dreams during uh, like waking hours and everything. And it's, it's really, really incredible imagery and like some of the most like twisted kind of unbelievable um, stuff that really only works in animation. And it's a, it's a, a trippy little movie and I would definitely recommend checking it out. I watched it on Tubi. It's streaming on there right now, um, like a couple ads throughout or whatever, but it was, it was not like a disruptive experience to, for me, um, as somebody who never really watches anything with ads anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was like, uh, very much worth watching and like just a fascinating, um, uh, lens to, to view or, or a fascinating, like trip into somebody's head and like. I think the the big knock against Inception was, you know, it's kind of a cold and sterile movie. That's something people say about Nolan's movies all the time. And they say, you know, the the detractors of that movie talk about how like the dream stuff didn't go far enough. And like the imagery in that movie is not uh, wild enough or like uh, unhinged enough. And if you're looking for that, you'll absolutely find it in Paprika. It feels more like an actual dream instead of, um, you know, the, the sort of like, uh, dream gimmick, I guess, if you want to call it that, that, that appears in Inception. So, um, the, the similarities are kind of hard to ignore at this point because both movies seem like so, um, so in conversation with each other, but, uh, I have, yeah, I really, I kind of want somebody to ask Nolan about this directly because I would love to hear what he physically has to say about this instead of just people like reading into, uh, you know, the, the imagery that appears, uh, in Inception. So, I, I have my speed dial. <laughs> you have Christopher Nolan speed up. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, in the lead up to uh, what is probably going to be Oppenheimer's uh, complete domination of the Oscars, I'm sure he's not busy at all or anything. So yeah, let's, let's, let's get him on the show right now. <laughs> yeah, um, to take, accepting an Oscar saying, by the way, I've never seen Paprika. Peace out. <laughs> that would be unbelievable. Um, okay. So yeah, we alluded to it. You saw Dune part two. Uh, how was it, Jacob? what do you think about it? Uh, Dune Part Two is phenomenal. If you liked Dune Part One, there's this is just. I feel like saying just more of that. It sounds like a negative thing, uh, but it really it, it, the film doubles down. It will make the first movie work, and it does some really smart thematic choices with, without uh, getting into spoilers. It brings some of the uh, ideas and heft from the next book, Dune Messiah. I think into the narrative here. I think it's possible to read Dune and think. Man, Paul's an awesome dude, and his, his whole plan is awesome. Whereas uh, Doom Messiah is a book where it kind of goes, well, maybe things weren't so good. Maybe you should think twice about all the things that you do as a character. Uh, and I think that uh, Dune Part Two wisely leans into that, where it lets Timothy Chalamet, who's really, really phenomenal here, like he's good in, the, in Part One, but I think he, he really shines here. Uh, and you really follow a guy who's uh desperately trying to avoid being the hero um uh, but not like in a refusing the call way but in a i want to save billions of lives way mm. which lends a um a thematic heft uh and like an emotional weight uh to this movie that uh i think really works uh the idea of you know um paul treaties being uh a uh corporate created um messiah so to speak um is uh i think uh tackled 
so interestingly here. Uh, but yeah, the movie is huge. Like it, it, it never feels stage bound. It never feels like you're watching something that was cooked up in computers, even though, you know, lots of it was, uh, I just watched it with like going, Oh, this feels like a substantial piece of art. This is, uh, for the first time since, you know, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, a genre adaptation that, uh, feels as big and as important as this um i feel like we'll, we'll probably talk spoilers on dune 2 in the future so i, I don't want to go too long but um mm-hmm. i had a phenomenal time here this is it's surprisingly funny um i my i, I saw it sunday night at the imax preview audience audience screenings and um jokes were landing more often than they did in part one i think it's because uh uh the relationship between paul and shawnee played by zendaya uh, is more is very much a central focus here, and they have a really strong relationship and a really good dynamic that leads to some really fun and funny and romantic moments. Uh, but on top of that, it's just the, the weirdness is still present. Like the, the film is just completely unapologetic in its. Um, yeah, this is this 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 is a weird planet, and we're going to embrace that. Uh, like there's an extended sequence set on the Harkonnen home planet where we first meet uh, the new villain played by Austin Butler, and it's it's full of the kind of visual swings that. I don't think Vanilla Villeneuve could have gotten away with on part one, but now in part two, is like, I'm going to go for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't have to explain the science of it, but the Harkonnen home planet has a, has a black sun, which leads to all outdoor scenes in Harkonnen planet having this bleached black and white look. And it's like, like it looks like, um, like HR Giger from the alien films designed an entire planet. It's wild looking. And, uh, I, Austin Butler's voice, <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> i guess this doesn't count as a spoiler so i'm gonna go ahead and just if you don't want to have austin butler's dune 2 voice you know click ahead 30 seconds uh but ben austin butler's doing a scars guard voice oh okay interesting i thought that he was going to be doing his elvis thing again no he's he's, he's doing the stellan scars guard bill scars guard voice he's bringing that, that raspy swedish accent so it's 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 funny because dave batista is supposed to be his his, his sibling Member of the same family, and he still uses David Batista voice, but the two scars go. But you have you have, uh, you have Stellan Skarsgård, and then you have Austin Butler doing his doing his Skarsgård <laughs> voice. Uh, I, I I was I was like I kept thinking this shouldn't work, but it's absolutely working. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I feel like I, I'm not, I haven't even touched on why Dune Two is great beyond much little details. But um, straight up, if you if Dune Two impressed you, sorry, if Dune One impressed you at all, then Dune Two will impress you as well. Like, I cannot imagine. Um, Dune to not being something you enjoy if you remotely enjoyed part one. Um, okay. If you didn't like part one, if you weren't buying what, what that first film was selling, this one is not going to win you over. It's just, it's re- it really is doubling down on that tone, on those ideas, not those visuals. Okay, man, I'm very excited. Yeah, I think the plan is for us to watch or is for us to do a, a full spoiler conversation on Friday. So maybe you'll have time to join us for that or at least part of it or something, Jacob. So we'll have to see. Fingers crossed on that. Um, tell me what you've been playing recently, the last segment that we have here. Yeah, the game of the moment right now is Helldivers 2. And I'm going to be the hipster who says, well, I played lots of Helldivers 1. I knew it before it was popular. Because uh, that, that is true. But also, I, I'll be that, let me be that jerk for, for 10 seconds, then I'll stop. But Helldivers 2, um, the first game was an isometric top-down shooter where you led a squad of soldiers to very sci-fi plants fighting aliens. Uh, sort of a couch co-op game. Uh, whereas this new one, it's a full-on third-person shooter. Um Squad based, you and people play. You and other people play online. Go on various missions to various different planets. Shoot lots of aliens. Get experience points. Upgrade your equipment. Um, but 
what made the first game so fun is present here, which is the fact that it's intended to be absolutely chaotic. Uh, I'll give you an example, Ben. You know how in video games, if you're playing a first-person shooter video game, if you fire five rounds out of your out of your gun at an enemy, you can then hit the reload button, and it reloads your gun, and all your ammo is still there. Mm-hmm. Well, Helldivers Two says, well, if if you fire five shots out of your magazine and hit reload, you just threw your magazine on the ground, so now you just wasted a bunch of ammo. Sorry. So, wow. uh, so is that, but so that's like the kind of thing, like little things like that, or like friendly fires, hundred percent thing, like. Friendly fire is unforgiving. If you shoot your ally, you will kill them. Um, and if and then stuff like if you want to call in extra ammo, you have to literally get on your radio, hold down the L1 button on the PlayStation 5 controller, and input a series of commands to call down additional ammo or call down a sniper rifle, call down a rocket launcher. And the idea is that it, it seems easy at first, but then like, oh my God, we're out of ammo, we're surrounded by enemies. Who can call down ammo? I'll call down ammo. Okay, cover me. Oh no, I'm being shot. I can't cover you anymore. So it leads to so the idea that the game has all these tiny little hindrances. The idea being that you got to watch how you reload. You got to watch how you call down re- reinforcement. You got to watch where you're shooting at all times. Um, it's intended to be difficult. It's intended to be like, if you're not on your headset talking to your team at all times, you're going to die. You're going to die very, very badly. <laughs> and at least it's so funny though, because it will be like, um, we're surrounded by these giant alien bugs. I'm going to call on a turret. I'm going to call in this, uh, this Gatling gun turret uh, that will be airdropped down. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw it down, and then uh, the giant pod containing it slams in the ground. But whoops! It, the, the pod has hit one of your allies and has killed him. Um, and then the Gatling gun emerges <laughs> from the ground, and it whoops! Uh, it's aiming at a aiming at an alien who is between who is who is uh, right across this, the map from where your other ally is. So the Gatling gun kills him while trying to kill the aliens. <laughs> so suddenly you're trying to dodge your own Gatling gun while bring back your revived allies. To stay alive, and this is it's the kind of game, Ben, where at the end of each mission you gotta you gotta call for evac, you gotta call for the giant jet to come pick you up, and the jet can and will land on you if, you, if you're not clearing <laughs> the path. So it's really funny. So on top of being difficult and challenging, requiring constant communication, it is funny. Like when you die, you're like everybody everybody's laughing. Like you play with the right group, and I recommend playing with people with friends or finding people who have good sense of humor. Uh, it just becomes so incredibly funny. Uh, it's one of the funniest video games I've ever played for that reason. Uh, because just the game wants you dead and wants, and, and it has a billion different ways to kill you. And, um, they're all funny. And this is on, on top of the other thing that I kind of want to lean on. This is, this is a movie podcast. Is that this is essentially Starship Troopers. It is, it is, um, uh, the, the whole joke of the game is that you're hell divers. You're these, uh, futuristic sci-fi soldiers sent in the battle and your characters are, are basically instructed that, you know, uh, your job is, is is to go teach all these different aliens about democracy by killing them. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, Starship Troopers was deliberately like we're fascists now. Helldivers has a sort of a um, um, hey, we're here to we're here to promote democracy. Wink, wink. We're actually fascists. Thing going on, and so the ongoing joke is that you'll be shooting giant alien bugs who do not speak English, and character will be shouting for democracy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or like you'll be on your ship between missions upgrading stuff and somebody on your ship will like have like incidental dialogue my favorite one so far was somebody saying um the existence of high casualty missions Im- implies the existence of low casualty missions and that's a blessing something along <laughs> those lines so it's, it's really really strong sense of humor the, the, the satire is thick and juicy and extremely fun and if you go on various fan forums or uh the subreddit for it to look for advice to look for tips uh the community's really embraced it so they'll be like um uh, like they'll be discussing like you know the game's really popular which means there's been some server issues so people are discussing um 
I'm really trying to spread managed democracy of the galaxy by keeping kicked off the surfer. Anybody having any advice? So, um, <laughs> so even though people are like, um, even when they're like complaining or looking for like tips or saying this, this mission keeps on killing me, they're often doing it in character. The game is the universe is encouraging you to be like, you know, man, I really want to go out to not go out uh, on a mission to, to like spread democracy tonight. Anybody else want to come help me? You know, so like I'll literally text my friends and be like, "Hey, anyone want to go spread democracy tonight?" And we'll jump on and we'll go kill bugs. Um, That's great. It's gotten really, really funny, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, there, there have been Starship Troopers games in the past, but they've none of them have really stood out. Been very good, and and Hell Divers too uh, captures that Paul Verhoeven sense of humor that I think is missing from um, those previous adaptations, and one at least the ones I touched. Uh, it's just a really fun game, Ben. And if you have a PlayStation 5 or a decent PC, it's also on Steam. Um, it's great. You, you, don't, you don't even need to be good at it. Like I said, half the fun is dying horribly and laughing. So um, that's all Divers 2. I recommend it a lot. Is it one of those games where you have to play online or is there like a single player campaign? You can play solo, but there is no campaign. The entire, the entire game's happening in real time. Like when you jump on into the game, there's a map of the galaxy where the various different fronts in the war are right now there's two two different enemies to fight in two different wars and there's room to add more you can clearly see the space where they can add you know factions three and four uh and you essentially pick areas where the enemies are advancing or your troops are advancing and you um are essentially encouraged to um fight in different fronts and it's very much a community effort like it's like very much like go like the game pretty much says you can go anywhere you want and fight any planet you want uh, but this area is where the robots are pushing back, or this area is where the bugs are reclaiming territory. So it's this constant, ongoing push and pull with the community, saying like, "Hey, try to keep the front, you know, where it needs to be." So you, you can play these solo, um, and I've done a little bit of solo play just to get some experience points and get some experience uh, on the ground, learning new weapons and stuff. Uh, but it's a game that's very much built around uh, multiplayer play, and you can play with randoms. Uh, and I've had some fun playing with random folks. Um, the game's pretty good about letting you kick people who are going to be jerks or people who shows up and aren't being useful or are just being assholes. You can, I just kick them immediately. Uh, but um, I generally try to play with people I know and I'm building up my, uh, my team right now. I have four or five people who I can rotate between, thankfully to try to get full squads, but uh, you can, you can, you can have fun with, with strangers. I've had plenty of fun with strangers, but if you have a dedicated team of people, um, you start learning the shorthand, you start like get running jokes going Um like one of my friends just keeps on keeps on killing me by accident. It's not his fault, but it's become like a running joke. Like you know, um, like every time we land on a planet, I'm like, okay, make sure you don't kill me. Uh, <laughs> so it's it, it's just really really, it's a really great co op game in that way because it it just creates memories and jokes immediately. Um, but you, you can still have fun without that. But I do think the game is a ten out of ten experience when you play with friends. All right, last question. Uh, when you die, pr- presumably in a comical way, are you allowed to respawn or are you just like sitting out the rest of that round? When you die, um, you're, uh, it's, it's actually kind of fun because when you die, your character is technically dead, but, they, they can, but the, everybody else can call on reinforcements. So they can, the same way they call on an ammo uh, drop or a turret drop or something like that, they can call on an extra soldier, which means them having to essentially hold down the L1 button and put a code, usually under fire, usually while running, usually while screaming, to drop a new pod in the ground under which you will emerge. But I, I like the detail that whenever you, when you're, whenever you come back as a new character, you have a new, you have a new voice because you're actually literally playing as a new character. Nice. Uh, uh, but yeah, so um, there's a limited number of respawns. I think that in a four-player squad, you can uh, bring back dead players 20 times. I think it's 15 for three people, 10 for two, and so on. Um, so yeah, um, you can always come back but it's the responsibility of the rest of the team to find the time to do it. 
And so sometimes you'll be screaming, they'll be screaming like, oh my God, we're under fire, we're surrounded. I was like, then bring me back, I can help you. I'll say, no, but I don't want to bring you back. I got to stop shooting and, and put the code. I'm like, and so, so like people are like, like running and dro- lobbing grenades behind them and, and, and just trying to say, like, the, the moment they bring you back, they die. So now you're back on the ground, <laughs> you have to bring them back. It just leads to all kinds of insane cycles like that, which, like I said, it's really fun. Awesome. Okay. So that's Helldivers 2. That sounds great. That sounds like a, yeah, like a Starship Troopers game that doesn't have the technical license to the IP or whatever, but uh, in in everything but name, uh, it sounds like a Starship, Starship Troopers experience. So it's pretty awesome. Um, cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on the show at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.